Hey everybody, welcome to Distorted by Glamour, a podcast about labor issues in film, or uh, why don't we all get to work an eight-hour day. I'm Charles Hain, I'm a filmmaker and podcast guy, and I'm here with Gigi Hawkins. Hi, I'm Gigi Hawkins, I'm a filmmaker and former podcast gal who's now on a podcast. This podcast is all about how the hell the film industry got as weird as it did in its working conditions, and what we can do to get it back. So for our kickoff episode... I wanted to talk about the strikingest group in the film industry, the Writers Guild of America. So before we go any further, Gigi, what do you know about the WGA? I uh, have limited knowledge of the WGA. I know you can get into it by writing for TV or film. It is a union and uh, recently there have been different types of people joining it, such as uh, podcast uh, companies or uh, companies that produce content online. Um, so different types of writers. And there's an East and there's a West. So the stereotype WGA West and WGA East is that the WGA West is like the high rollers, the Hollywooders, the like, you know, we're having a strike planning meeting and everybody shows up in Benzes and Beamers. And the East Coast is a bunch of fire-breathing communists. Uh, and uh, that is the stereotype. It's not always true. And the unions are a lot more closely aligned than they used to be. So uh, in the beginning of the film industry, which is really like the teens and 20s, writers were contract workers. It's so crazy if you go back on IMDb now and you look at some of these, you know, a modern writer might have like seven produced movies in their entire career if they are lucky. But you go back and you read the IMDb of some of these people working in the 20s, and it's like 54 movies were made in 12 years wow. because they were on contract. They were expected to show up every day in the office, turn out a, a large amount of pages, working on scripts all the time, being moved from project to project all the time. And a lot of stuff was getting made in a very factory-like setting. Basically, what ended up happening was the Great Depression happened, and the film industry mostly did quite well during the Great Depression, but some of the studio bosses used the Great Depression as an excuse to try and pay people less. Uh, the great anecdote from the book, The Writers, is Louis B. Mayer getting everybody in the screening room and giving a big speech about the financial necessity and how everybody has to take a pay cut and how important it is and having some plants already built in the crowd to be like, I'm going to take the pay cut. I'm going to take the pay cut. And, you know, Sneaky. talking a whole bunch of people who work for the studio into taking massive pay cuts because without it, the studio would not survive. But of course, Louis B. Mayer being Louis B. Mayer, the state of the financial panic was exaggerated mm -hmm. to lower salaries, but the studio was probably going to be fine. Mm -hmm. So in the early 30s, 1933, the Screenwriters Guild starts to form initially almost as like a social club for screenwriters. But eventually, by 1941, they get an agreement to be the official exclusive bargaining agent for writers when dealing with studios. So this is um, the image that I get. It's a bunch of writers sitting around drinking their amber drinks, smoking their cigarettes, because you could do that. And they start to get angry after a couple of drinks talking about this like sitting at a desk having to churn out pages after pages after pages and then I guess seven or eight years later that's all that momentum and all that sort of like airing of grievances which it's interesting because I feel like we're seeing that today with IATSE on social media that is what ultimately led to them coming together. I mean that is a really interesting observation that it's like one of the things we get out of social media and IA stories on Instagram is like solidarity 
like mm -hmm. some ability to realize other people are going through the same situation as you are. So like in the 1930s screenwriters guild, there were some female members, but it was primarily straight white dudes mm -hmm. for the most part. And one of the big things they bitched about, it was not just pay, although it's always pay, but it was also screen credit. One thing that happened a lot is you'd work on a movie for three or four weeks and then you get taken off of it. Someone else would show up. They do a final week pass and they would get the full credit for the movie. Oh. And you'd be like, no, but I wrote that whole movie. And obviously credit is something that matters personally because we care about it. Yeah. But it's also something that matters a lot for your reputation and for the future jobs you get, right? Your contract ends at Paramount and you're trying to pick up a, a contract at Warner's to keep working. And what movies you had credit on matter what rate you're going to be able to negotiate at your next contract at another studio or at the same studio. I mean, I, I can imagine being in the situation of a writer and you at the time don't know if whether or not the project will be taken away from you and you'll lose that credit. You always, and I think this is something we see again and again in the film industry, hence the name of our show, Distorted by Glamour, you want to do your best work. You want to tell the best story. You want to create the scene that's been sort of like brewing in beneath your skin for like, you know, your whole life. And you finally found the right time to use that line, that scene, that character. And then you could lose all, all of that. So it sort of like disincentivizes you. But I think the catch 22 of like being a creative person and working in this industry is you want to create the best thing. Yeah. We want to do good work. We just want the circumstances to be set up to do amazing work. And we don't want our desire to do good work to be taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. So there's a strike in 52 over residuals. They win the right to say, we're not just paid to do the job. We're also part owners and the profits of the job. And in 1954, they merge with the TV Writers Association and the Radio Writers Association to form WGA West and WG East, covering film, TV, and radio writers. And then in 1961, there's a really big strike that goes on for 21 weeks, wow. and the strike is over residuals from films then being shown on television, which in 1960 was like just starting, right? Like mm -hmm. television had only really been around for a decade, and so much of television before that was live, and it was the beginning of, oh, I have this movie, and I can get more revenue out of it by licensing it to TV networks where they can show it at night when we're not doing live programming, or they can show it on weekends or whatever, you know, the Sunday afternoon movie, that kind of thing. and you know, the writers were like, in 1952, we run the right for residuals of a movie in the theater. Like, it has a big theatrical release. It makes a lot of money. We get residuals there, right? All right. It's not just we want residuals for theatrical. We also want residuals for TV. And I like this strike and paying attention to it for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, it's the first big example of the way in which this job has always been affected by technology, mm -hmm. right? Like, you were originally writing for the movie theater, and then already by 1960... The studios have been like, oh, well, there's this other revenue source we can take advantage of. And the writers have to be like, yep, we also deserve part of that. Like, we wrote it. We are part of it. We should get it. I also really like the 1960 strike because, you know, if you've ever seen The Apartment, which is a phenomenal Billy Wilder movie, I mean, there's two or three things that don't age well. There's a point where someone else reads someone else's HR file and it comes off as way creepier now yeah. than it did then. But, you know, for the most part, amazing screenplay by Billy Wilder and IAL Diamond and like really beautifully shot. Like it's such a good movie. And there's an opening sequence where a character is like channel surfing mm -hmm. and everything is garbage except for this movie. Mm -hmm. And then he channel surfs again because the movie hasn't started yet and it's all garbage. And then he comes back around and he's like, ah, oh, this movie. And... I only realized when I started researching this that that was about that strike. 
Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the apartment comes out in 61. It was shot in late 1960. It was clearly influenced by this successful WGA strike where they fought for, hey, guys, the best stuff on television in their mind at the time was these movies we wrote getting reshown on TV and we deserve residuals right. for it. And so that sequence is not just a dig at um, the quality you know, of television. Yeah. It's also like specifically about the strike. It's so, also to your point about like the technology being a catalyst for change after a movie is released in theaters up until the early 60s it just would go into a vault like this opportunity to even have films live on tv extended the life of the film itself so obviously the writers are also incentivized to let their work live on um where again this could be an opportunity because they're so passionate about the project for it to be exploited no absolutely to be like hey there are these new technologies that are gonna show the work we care about to people and we want to encourage that work to get shown to more people because we care about the thing we made and we want people to see it. But then we would like to share in the response to it. Because, yeah, before television, like, movies had much longer theatrical runs back then. You know, it wasn't uncommon if a movie was a hit to show in theaters for, like, a year in rotation with other movies. But, yeah, I mean, once it left the theaters, it was largely gone. Comparing that to my daughter who, like, you know, when we sit down to watch a little afternoon TV, she's like, I want Halloween show. And I'm like, okay, well, there's like a five million Halloween shows we can select from. Um, and they're all available right now. Like, she will never understand even the technical limitations of my childhood. And or the, the concept of a blockbuster. Oh, yeah. It will never it will never read for her. Although I, I have a feeling I see so many people in Brooklyn with like nostalgic film, 35 millimeter film cameras. Now I have a sneaking suspicion that by the time my daughter is in high school, there will be a nostalgic retro blockbuster somewhere in Brooklyn um, that we can take her to and pretend to rent a VHS. And it's actually just like an NFT license for a movie that we plug into our computer <laughs> when we get home. Um, and, and they're like, I just prefer VHS, the quality, you know, it just looks different. It feels different. So that's a good pivot to VHS. So uh, in the 80s, we get a couple more strikes. In 81, they strike over cable TV revenue. Another theme here is that the people they are striking against, as new technologies come out, they never think to themselves, well, they're getting TV revenue. So I guess they should go ahead and get cable revenue. The, the default assumption is, oh, well, this is a new thing. So you'll get no revenue from it. And so in 81, they strike over cable. And then in 85, there's a strike over VHS. But by the 80s, there's some unity problems going on at the WGA. Uh, I mean, there's always been WGA West versus WGA East, and they really have to come together to do an effective strike. Union activity is being decimated by Reagan in the 80s already. Mm -hmm. It's also sort of a tricky time where we're starting to see more of the hyphenate. I mean, we forget that until the 70s, it was incredibly rare for anyone to have more than one job. There was Billy Wilder, writer-director, and there were a few other writer-directors in the 60s, 70s. But for the most part, people all did one thing. And the concept of the hyphenate, I'm a writer-director, producer-star, is really born in the 70s and then the 80s, where you start to see people who are like a writer and a producer on TV shows. The concept of the showrunner doesn't really come in until the 90s, but like the beginning precursors of I'm a writer and I created the show and I have an ownership stake in the show are really being born in the 80s. And that makes it very complicated for the Writers Guild because it's the beginning of the period where you can be a writer and so you're incentivized to get paid as a writer and you're also a producer where you're incentivized to pay your writers as little as possible. And that conflict 
is one that we're going to see over and over again over the last 30 years is labor groups really try and figure out who are we representing? How are we best representing them? And how do we deal with some of the conflicts of incentives? It was very clear in the 30s of like, we are writers, you pay us weekly to sit in this office and write, and you are studio bosses. And, you know, you hang out in Santa Monica and your mansions. And now it's this messy thing of like a lot of people in the Writers Guild are also producers, mm -hmm. are also showrunners, also own part of the show and want to do it as cheaply as possible because that's the incentives of business that made it harder to fight as hard as they could. And they actually get what's frankly a pretty bad deal on VHS. Mm. It's long recognized that it's a pretty bad deal. And did they um, have a an opportunity to renegotiate with DVDs? The Writers Guild did attempt in their negotiations to improve their deal on DVD, especially because the argument was, hey guys, on a VHS tape, your profit margin was really low because they're really expensive to make, but now DVDs are really easy to make. So we need a bigger share of it. And that was part of the tension. But before we get to that, I want to get to the longest of strikes. It's like almost six months, the 1988 strike which is about foreign income. Because what's starting to happen more is foreign sales. Mm. In the 70s, or in the 60s especially, there wasn't the mass international communication. You weren't taking TV shows and selling them abroad as quite as much. It happened, especially with the UK and Canada. But like it wasn't this huge boon mm -hmm. that it would be in the 80s. And the writers were like, well, hey, if you sell my show or my concept abroad, I would also like part of that revenue. Right. And they fought for it, and they didn't really get a very good deal on it in 88. But I wanted to talk about 88 not because of the specific issue they're striking over, but because 88 had some interesting stuff that continues to sort of be part of the strategy to this day. Mm -hmm. Oh, so this is a good time to introduce, like, we're going to talk a lot in the rest of this episode about late night comedy variety shows. And I am by no means using late night comedy variety shows as like, this is the bellwether of our culture. I'm using late night comedy variety shows because it's the first indicator of what changes in your content when the writers go on strike, right? Like oh. when the writers go on strike six months later, a sitcom might start tanking. Like right. they'll have a few weeks of scripts in the tank or whatever. But late a year night, later, like your procedural is going to tank. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. The tonight show, the Conan O'Brien show. These are the shows that like the writers that morning are reading the news and making jokes for that night. The So it is really the bellwether. So those are the shows that become the real lead indicators. And so it's weird because you spend all of this time talking about shows that like aren't the thing that we really think about for writers, right? Like it's not like, you know, in the late 80s, you're talking about Cheers or something, but it's like Cheers, you're not going to notice like this strike kicked off in the spring. You're not going to notice until you get to September that there's not new episodes of Cheers showing. They're right. showing reruns. But oh my God, if Johnny Carson is up there making bad jokes that are wildly out of date you're going to notice really quickly you don't do reruns of the tonight show and they still the night shows they still would put the show on just the sort of half-assed so or unwritten yeah. version oh my god so the tonight show returns on may 11th of 88 without guild content it's by all notes kind of a flop oh this gives and... me anxiety charles like my worst nightmare is that i like get up on stage and it's a reoccurring dream. And my high school acting teacher is like, Gigi, didn't you get the memo? We're doing Midsummer Night's Dream and you're playing Helena. And I'm like, wait, I didn't. So I have to like improvise Shakespeare. So this essentially <laughs> is uh, terrifying, yeah. terrifying. Poor Johnny Carson. I, don't I know, mean, maybe I, I feel more for Ed McMahon, who seems like a nice guy. Johnny oh. Carson seems like a dick. So he could probably squirm here a little bit. Yeah, yeah. He's very funny, <laughs> but kind of mean. But yeah, I mean, poor, poor Ed, McMahon, Ed McMahon up there without the quips. 
getting handed to him. When these writers were on strike and we were seeing in late night television the sort of immediate drop-off and the immediate repercussions of content that is not WGA produced or written. Were audiences responding to it? Did they stop watching? Did they turn their TVs off? Or did they sort of like the run in and complain? is that the lost revenue from the strike is estimated at about half a billion dollars. Wow. In terms of like lost ad revenue because of lower ratings. People have studied it. And the 2008 strike does not seem to have affected long-term viewership. Mm-hmm. But... There is some belief that the 1988 strike did that like people who'd been like 20 year watchers of like late night TV switched to like, oh, I'll just watch news before bed instead of Carson and never came back. Wow. Wow. So they're sort of like channel permanent channel switchers. Yeah. But what's really interesting is within two weeks, the Writers Guild starts doing side agreements. Almost immediately, they do side agreements with The Cosby Show, The Tonight Show, and ALF. And now it's time to talk about what a side deal is. So the AMPTP... Is that allowed? Is that kind of anti-guild? It's not actually anti the WGA, but it's anti the AMPTP. The AMPTP is the Association of Motion Picture and Television Producers, and it's a trade group of the big TV networks, the big studios. They get together as a consortium, and they say, instead of us all striking separate deals with the WGA we're going to negotiate as a big giant group and because we're a big giant group we are going to be able to get a better deal out of the WGA whereas if the WGA goes to NBC and ABC independently they can grind on us more if we stay unified in what we're giving them we're going to be stronger right but there's an interesting thing that's happening in the 80s two-thirds of primetime television is these independent productions like the Cosby show was not owned by NBC. The Cosby Show was owned by Casey Werner, which was like an independent production company. So technically they were in the AMPTP, but it's not like NBC went off and signed a side deal. It was like Casey Werner went off and signed a side deal. It is a smaller company to peel off. And, you know, Tonight Show was a, a separate entity. By the end of the 90s, the studios really reconsolidated and like the shows were primarily owned again by the networks producing them. But in the 80s, we had these like independent production companies producing a lot of this content, and it was easier for them to peel off and make a separate side deal. And of course, the WGA wants that because if they can go out, sign a deal with Cosby Show where they're getting what they want out of Cosby Show, it puts more pressure on the other producers because all of a sudden it's like, all right, well, Cosby Writer's back. Is Cosby going to be back on the air three weeks before everybody else? That's three weeks where they're going to be the only new sitcom. And so everybody's going to be watching that. Are they all going to fall in love with Cosby and not like the rest of the show? You know, are they going to forget about us? So it becomes this like competitive pressure. Both sides want the other side to break and you can get people to break by getting factions to break off first. So this was like sort of a big part of the arrangement in 88 is that people start to peel off by May. And then by August, the guild approves a new contract with a larger share of foreign residuals. And they get a sliding residual scale. So instead of fixed residuals, it's like sliding residuals. And they get more creative rights. That's the half billion dollar strike. The 22 week strike, the longest, the big one. What's fascinating about that is it, it these side deals, these side negotiations, which create pressure. You know, if I were working on not one of those sitcoms, I'd be like, wait, guys, don't sign it yet. We, we're just getting momentum. And it would be frustrating if you watched your fellow peers start their shows up again with these side deals. But you could use it as leverage. 
I mean, that is also a problem that we'll get to in 2008 where people are like, no, wait a minute. Why are you going back to work? And I'm not, I'm out here on the strike. I'm not making any money. And now you're back to work. Like that definitely causes unity problems at the WGA. There's also blowback problems from AMPTP. These shows that cut these side deals face repercussions like less promotion from their network, less ad revenue, worsening ad sales because the network is pissed that the show cuts a side deal. Yeah. So in 88, it's a risk to cut the side deal. It's a complicated place to be in. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it it's, it is complicated and it's tricky. <laughs> I was going to say it's complicated. Yeah. Um, so then there wasn't another strike until 2008, which is the one we're about to get to. There's a lot of reasons why there wasn't another strike. For a long time, the executive director of the WGA and the executive director of the uh, West and East would not talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, The WGA East head was like a longtime labor negotiator sort. And the WGA West made a decision to hire a man named McLean who was coming from the studio side. Mm -hmm. And they thought that that was going to give them like an in with like the studios and in the end he ended up just doing a lot of giving the studios everything they wanted and wasn't necessarily able to win things for them it was a strange decision so a group called writers united formed headed by patrick verone and ran for the board of directors of wga west Mm -hmm. and won and got rid of mclean and put in a new executive director david young who had come from like a lot of ground level organizing of real working class Los Angeles Mm -hmm. groups and been quite effective at like winning concessions. And it then comes into the WGA West around a time that something is happening, which is the internet is coming Mm -hmm. and video on the internet is coming. Mm -hmm. Now in the nineties, we all sort of knew that video was going to end up on the internet by 2007, 2008 uh, internet streaming is starting to become a thing. Um, I have a weird relationship with this in that I've never had cable television. Like I went to college and we didn't have cable and I never had it as an adult. So like all of my viewing up to this point was renting DVDs. That was it. That was what I did. And then around 2007, 2008, people were like, oh, have you seen the show 30 Rock? And I was like, I I haven't. I don't know how I would. It wasn't. It was like still in season one. And then NBC.com was showing it there. And that. The internet got me back to broadcast television. Wow. So, like, I thought of the internet as, like, obviously, broadcast television is a market. The producers were trying to argue, as they always do, of, like, this is a new technology. We don't know what it might be. We need to figure out what it is. We'll talk about revenue later. Yeah. And the WGA was right, where they said, no, 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 no. We have to talk about revenue now. You know, there's two times to talk about money before there's money and after there's money. That's a thing that comes up a lot when you're talking about, like, starting a business is, like, you know, should we figure out the money splits now or should we figure it out once we've got revenue going? And it's like, you know, before and after is always a choice. And I will say this, having been on both sides of it a lot of times, it's different to talk about it after because once money is flowing, the concept of who gets what is much harder to figure out. And you want to have some reasonable conversations ahead of time when there's not a a giant money hose flowing through the room. All of the big guilds and unions have what's called an MBA, a minimum basic agreement, which is the minimum everybody's going to get paid and how they're going to be treated. You can always make more than that, right? You know, you can go out and get $4 million for your script about strippers in Las Vegas. It happened in the 90s, right? Like that was beyond the minimum basic agreement. But the minimum basic agreement is, you know, a script is not going to be bought for less than $70,000. An episode of TV is not going to be written for less than X, a minimum basic agreement. And they're usually in three-year terms. And the minimum basic agreement, the MBA, for the writers was up on Halloween of 2007. Mm-hmm. 
we're coming up on it. Sometimes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The 14 year anniversary of it. 14 years. My God. Um, I that's hope crazy. that you and your daughter, and I know that she already asked for you to dress up as a pancake, but I hope that you could also maybe on the night before Halloween do a sort of like Writers Guild stripe costume, sort of throwback 14 years. Um, don't know. Actually, I do have a suggestion of what it could be because I do know one of my favorite web series came out of the strike because people wanted to make things, and so they created Neil Patrick Harris created Doctor Horrible's sing along blog. So yes, absolutely. I never actually watched Doctor Horrible's sing along blog, but I love the idea of a WGA themed Halloween costume, and so I'm going to totally put that in my back pocket and keep that yeah. in mind because that could be super fun. Okay, so SAG and uh, at that time AFTRA, which was two separate groups, now they're combined into SAG-AFTRA, and the DGA and the WGA often sort of collectively bargain. They will be affiliated in their bargaining and they'll support each other in strikes and stuff like that. And the DGA and SAG were both up next spring. And so there was sort of this informal thought that everybody in town had that the DGA is just going to let this ride and we're going to wait. And then if there's going to be a strike, it won't be till next summer. So we can just wait it out. And then if there is a summer strike, it's less of a big deal because this was back when, like, TV's really had a season. Right, like, right. Like, uh, strike in summer, we're going to lose some revenue, but, you know, we won't have to give up much to get it to end. And even the WGA was like, you know what, we'll just wait and we'll strike when DGA and SAG and AFTRA are up and we'll do it all together. And then producers started pre-ordering extra scripts knowing a strike is coming so they're like all right well let's get a couple drafts in on this feature let's get some more episodes of the show let's bring on a bigger writer team let's start to get stuff in the bank so if the writers do strike we can keep producing content with the stuff they wrote during the strike this is like a bit of a just technical question but when you bring up the idea of getting a couple more drafts in on this feature for example when you're striking as a writer and you're a member of the Writers Guild. This means you don't even pick up your pen to do anything. You nope. you can't get on a call to talk about anything at all. You nope. can't interact. Nope. Got it. No, you can write a spec that you sell when the um, strike is over. So you're and... kind of hold, you're holding back that the materials, yeah. the the assets essentially. Exactly. Got it. But you know the producers and like fair. I get it. You're like, oh, the strike might be coming. Let's try and backlog some inventory so we could still do some stuff during the strike. Fair. All right. So what the Writers Guild did is they saw this happening and they were like, what if we did a surprise strike and struck right now? And you can read in interviews from the time where people are like, this is a move you really only have once. Like the vast majority of strikes people see coming quite a ways away and there's all this planning. But this one time... They were like, wait a minute, guys, let's just do this right now. Our contrast is expired. Let's strike. And so, like, by the beginning of November, they were on strike. How did they, they rally just, like, everyone so quickly? Again, this goes back to something we were talking about earlier, where digital organizing became a really big part of this. Mm. Like, the WGA, obviously, they have strike loans and a strike fund, so people can access some funds to survive through a strike. But they also used some of that money to hire strike captains. They immediately put up a website that was including information about the strike and including video links about the strike for the first time and including information to share with people. And they had strike captains that were checking in with people and making sure information flowed. They were able to have a level of speed because of the same new communication tools that they were trying to get a residual from. Right, right. That's, I love how that works out. Yeah. 
And the strike went on for a hundred days. And it was kind of a huge deal. I remember as a kid hearing about it and and it was it was a big deal. Yeah. And you can read about this a lot in all sorts of places where people are talking about the IA strike now. Like the 2008 strike was really the place where they got a sense of solidarity with their union. Mm -hmm. They got to know the history of their union and everything it had done. And they got excited about all the potential of what could be accomplished when groups of people come together to take action. And TV sucked. Like it was terrible. There is a myth this is the reason why reality television took off. I was off. just about um, to ask that. I was like, oh, and yeah. then Keeping Up with the Kardashians happened. But I mean, so reality really launched between about 2000 and 2003. So America's Top Noddle was up by 2003. Survivor was up by 2000. And networks quickly realized like, oh, I don't have to pay writers. I don't have to pay actors. I can pay non-famous people to be in my show. So the reality explosion was already well going mm-hmm. in response to this strike. So there was a little bump in reality because of the strike but like to say that because of the strike we have reality television is definitely not fair yeah but what did happen was written television sucked you know i think it's friday night light season two famously is the strike season where like even fans of the show to this day will be like oh well you can skip season two because the writers were on strike and it was gibberish who was putting the lines of dialogue and action in the physical scripts that they were shooting like non-wga writers they were hiring other people they were like who would like to write the show please this is again feels like a call back to my my reoccurring nightmare of like not now i'm on stage and i'm trying to improvise shakespeare and also write shakespeare without the experience oh this is giving yeah. me more anxiety charles Well, I'm glad. I'm glad this makes you anxious. Um, So, again, we have a late night show cutting a side deal. David Letterman's Worldwide Pants immediately cuts a side deal. There's no word of repercussions that I found in any of my research, so I don't know if he took a hit for this at all. But that meant his show and Craig Ferguson's show, which was also produced by Worldwide Pants, just kept going with their writers. And that did cause some conflicts. Like, the Worldwide Pants writers had some issues where, like, other people in the grilled were, like, a little grumbly annoyed that they were still making a living writing and the rest of the guild wasn't. But Worldwide Pants just cut a side deal, like, straight off. But, again, David Letterman, Worldwide Pants, independent company, could do that. Right. Other shows were not able to do that and made the decision where they would publicly make a statement saying, we support the strike and we're in favor of the strike, but we also have all of these other employees. Like, Conan was like, I have another 107 employees that I have to keep working. Mm -hmm. So they did the show without writers for a while. SAG encouraged actors to skip shows that stayed on. So that was one of the SAG solidarities was like, all right, you should only do Letterman and Ferguson when you're promoting a movie that is coming out in this window. You should skip the other shows. Both The Daily Show and The Colbert Report changed their name in solidarity. The Daily Show changed their name to A Daily Show. And Colbert Report changed their name to Colbert report like we are continuing on because we have other employees but we respect what the writers guild is fighting for and a lot of people skipped monologues and stuff and the shows were not as good without their writers like that is the deal the studios put the shows on hiatus showrunners got fired but also the first people fired were usually the pas and assistants Mm. which is a little cruel because the showrunners you know are the ones that can afford to live without the pay but the PAs and assistants can't. So like Seth McFarlane of all people like gave a big speech about like, it's on everyone who can afford to, to keep paying all of the laid off people and like publicly paid all of the people fired on his shows to keep them eating, which is like kind of amazing. 
Yeah. The AMPTP went to England and tried to get UK writers to cross the line and the UK Writers Guild uh, encouraged their members not to do it, which I thought was like a savvy move to be like, oh, well, you know, England, they also speak our language and they're very good writers. But it was nice to have a little bit of solidarity there. In the UK, they were not striking, but they were still continuing to, they were supporting their English productions, but they weren't crossing the line into american u.s productions got it, got it. which is bold because like if you're you know an english writer doing stuff for channel four the opportunity to be like an nbc show is i'm sure very tempting totally and after 100 days in february they struck a deal getting two of the big three asks if you write it directly for the internet it's covered by wga and you get residuals and if you write it elsewhere and it shows on the internet you get residuals wow. in the end more than 60 tv shows have been shut down causing a drop in ratings, uh, tens of millions of dollars in ad revenue directly lost. By the end, the estimate is that $3 billion were cut from the local LA economy by this wow. strike. But thank God. The big, thank God they did yeah. it. Because yeah. I mean, it's frustrating online. that they had to do it. Yeah. I mean, the goal is always to not have to strike. Like right. nobody wants IA to strike. Like strikes are hard and they cost the economy and they cost people money and it's been a hard few years. And like the idea of going out without work for a while is difficult. And it's never the goal to strike. Mm -hmm. The strike is the threat you use to get better treatment. I'm glad they were willing to do it for 100 days. Um, The thing they didn't get was they wanted coverage for reality TV and animation and they didn't get it. And that was the thing they caved on. But one really fascinating thing for me is the president at the time, Patrick Verone, has talked about how there were concessions they were willing to let go in the negotiation. Because, you know, these negotiations are secret, right? Like right. not every, you know, they're not live streamed, right? Like you're in a room and you're hashing it out and you, you need a little bit of freedom to be like, well, what if we gave you this? And what if we gave you that? Right. Without knowing whether you'd have to sell it back to your membership. And apparently there was a point where Throne was willing to give up DVD residuals hmm. and went back to the membership. And the membership was like, no, we, we really need those. Like, DVD is not going away as fast as you think. That needs to be improved. And Verone was like, okay, hear you. And went back in and fought harder for an improvement in DVD residuals. So it's one of those things of like, it's so good to remember that even though the negotiation's happening without you in the room, they need to sell it back to the membership. Right. So if you're in a union or a guild, you need to get involved so you can make it clear, like, what are the things that you are looking for? Mm-hmm. And what are the things you need in order to accomplish all of your goals? Right. So... Now we're going to get into some more recent stuff that the WGA has done, which I think everybody should be aware of and what's going on. And the first is the 2019 Action Against Packaging. So, Gigi, what is packaging? I know I'm going to butcher this, but it's basically when management or agencies sort of use their existing clientele across like directors, talent, even cinematographers to create a sort of deal that then they're selling to studios directly, which then could basically sort of like disincentive uh, advocating for uh, the people that they're representing. Is that at all anywhere in the realm of what it is? Yeah. Oh my no, God. That's like, that's like perfect. That's great. So basically up until the eighties, an agency was always like, all right, what's the opening directing gig? All right. That's the open directing gig. I think this guy's good for it. I think this guy's good for it. This person I went to Harvard with is good for it. This person that I know from the golf club is good for it. And you're sending over people's reels and you're trying to get them parts, right? My, and, my uncle's uh, nephew is great for it. Exactly. So then in the eighties, they had this really brilliant idea where they were like, well, Hey, we've got directors and writers and actors. What if we wrapped them together in a package 
and we 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 sold it as a package like oh you've got this writer and this director and this actor and we put it together and we we bring it to a studio a whole movie i'll put together for you called a package and you know what we'll do because we're providing the service you're going to give us what's called a packaging fee which is, you know, calculated based on the total budget of the project we put together for you. There are some arguments for why packaging can be good. But what started to happen quickly is then the companies started to get really interested in, like, not only doing the package, but they were like, all right, well, if we put together the package and we could get some private equity money, should we just make it? Should we just, like, do the making of it, too? Like, we've got an agency and then we've got a creative arm of the agency, which is the name of the agency with the word content added to it. And we get some private equity money and we start doing the whole deal. And the problem with it is when an agent is representing you specifically as a writer, their Mm -hmm. job is to get you the most money possible so they can take their 15%, right? Right. They get you a million dollars, they're getting 150 grand. Like that's a big reward for getting you a million dollar sale. When an agency is motivated to either get that packaging fee, if they want to get that packaging fee, their job is to make the package as cheap as possible to make it appealing to the studio. So instead of saying, hey, studio, this script is amazing. You should be spending $4 million on it because it's a it's going to be a great movie. They're instead saying, hey, we have this package and it's like a writer and he'll take 300 grand for the script and it's a director and, you know, he'll take 300 grand. And they're putting this package together and they're like, okay, so the whole package is only going to be like $2 million and then we'll take a million dollar packaging fee and, and away we go. So their incentive is to get you less money, not more money. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as they're also in the content creation business – where they're like, oh, and also we're the ones who are making it. We're getting this private equity money. They're really not incentivized to get you paid. So the WGA was like, hey, guys, you should stop packaging. We don't like it. And all the big talent agencies were like, oh, no, we're going to keep packaging this rules. And so the WGA took a vote and everybody fired their agent. (laughs) Yes. Which is like not the same as a strike, but it's so badass. (laughs) And, you know, universally in May of 2019, they were all like, okay, we'll just do this without agents then. We have lawyers who can do our contracts and they're incentivized to do our contracts, right? And we'll negotiate. And they figured out a whole like online process for helping people get staffed on shows. Mm -hmm. And and it dragged on for a while. And finally, it was again, UTA split off from the other agencies. UTA has always been famously like very talent friendly, especially like literary talent, like the writers in particular. So it's no, it's no surprise that they broke off. And then CAA, which was a surprise. And then finally WME broke off mm-hmm. and cut deals. And we're like, okay, we're going to, you know, WM, WME used to have Endeavor content, which was their content arm. And like, right. in order to keep working with the WGA, like they have to spin Endeavor content off and like, they're not going to package. And it was baller to watch. It's fascinating um, to see the sort of, especially in this particular non-strike, but like collective action, the sort of like push and pull of business and creative in this industry, where it feels like there's always a, there, it's always a point of tension, which sometimes leads to, in this case, because as I understand with these deals negotiated, all agents are hired back. It, it it then resupports the creative because they're now again pushing for you know hey this is going this script is damn good you will sell it to you we'll represent the writer and then we'll basically create the best version of what it could be versus before it almost feels like it would be taking away from that packaging could disincentivize pushing for the best creative well, it's also like when a studio is working properly, they might get an amazing script from creative artists or UTA 
and read it and be like, oh, you know the actor we need in this? They're creative artists. And it's fine that they're at a different agency because they're the right actor for the part. Right. And as anybody who's ever seen Bonfire of the Vanities knows, when the wrong actor is in the part, there's so many things wrong with Bonfire uh-huh. of the Vanities. But like the miscasting of Tom Hanks, who is genuinely good at many things, but is not right for that part, is one of the things that really sinks that movie. And you're like, as a writer... You want the right actor in the part, not right. the actor that happens to be at the same agency as you. Right. Because you want your movie to rule in the end. That's the thing that over and over, Distorted by Glamour, we all want these things to be good so badly. We all right. want to make the best thing possible. And listen, and... we love Tom Hanks and we forgive Tom Hanks for being in that role. But we do, do want you forgive our thing... Tom Hanks for Cloud Atlas? Um, no. <laughs> that, that's a line too far? Yeah. So this leads us all to 2021. Today. And the election of a new board of directors for the WGA East. And, you know, the election just happened and we'll get to who won in a minute. But the conflict was really over whether or not the WGA East is going to continue to organize new media. So in 2015, Gawker Media got organized into the WGA East. And then 2016, Huffington Post and now Slate and Vox Media and Hearst, Vice, Fox, Gimlet, HuffPo, Talking Points Memo, Salon are all organized under the WGA East. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about that is that there's also this thing called the News Guild. And that covers like the traditional news media, right? Like that covers like NBC, ABC, and New York Times, and Wall Street Journal. And so when the WGA East first started organizing these digital shops, there was some conversation about like whether or not it was the right move, but they were doing it. And that's where the shops voted to organize. And from where I sit, I always thought it was really a good thing because I think of those as being the latter jobs that are hopefully going to take you into writing the television and the movies. Like 15 years ago, when Diablo Cody sold her first script, the fact that a blogger sold a script was like so much a part of the story. Like blogger turned screenwriter. But like now at this point, so many of the scripts. Writers usually like to have like three or four or five like things in their passel they're doing at any time, like a spec script that's all of their ambition and some cash flow stuff and all of that stuff. And like in the beginning of your career, two or three of those things are like some digital media content creation that gets your cash flow going and keeps you eating food and paying rent while you work on your grand ambitious spec script. Right. Gimlet Media has produced a TV show with CBS, Alex Inc. And so many of their narrative podcasts are turning into shows as well. And I'm sure some of their non-narrative podcasts will get turned into shows and like it's it makes so much more sense to me that these platforms would be with the wga east than they would be with the news guild because it feels closer to a ladder climb into where the wga east wants to take them right than it does the news guild which is like all about becoming eventually like editor-in-chief of the new york times or something like that's where you're climbing and it's like well that's not really where a lot of the people making podcasts now want to go so the election of 2021 Like, if we remember back in 2005, 2006, Writers United, uh, when Patrick Verone and that whole board got elected, that really led to the power of the writer strike. And it was a really exciting time. And it's an exciting time now. There were two slates, the diversity and experience slate, uh, which was all about like, hey, guys, let's hold off on new media for a while. And solidarity slate, which was like, let us continue new media. Like, this is going to keep growing and being a thing. And there's going to be a much bigger blur. and you know, we're going to start to see all of these like traditional media and new media and like Vox already makes so much video content and Vice and like, it just makes sense that these should be WGAs. I was at Gimlet when the company was unionizing and what was, you know, unlike when I was at the Wall Street Journal where I sort of like was 
who knows if well I was in the union or and or paying dues to the union but was on the ad sales team there when I was at Gimlet on the ad sales team. I worked on Gimlet Creative and every time we would sell through a podcast, I would get a bonus from it and then my peers who are my friends who are producers on the shows would have to actually make it and do the writing and do the work and so there seemed to be a bit of like a disconnect the way that it was built where uh, I would get the bonus and they would then do the work and be dependent on it so I feel like I was almost in that studio position and I remember when uh, the producers who again we were a small company a small team and they were my friends came to me asked me to sign the the letter in solidarity I was like oh yes duh because you guys should be getting sharing this bonus right and you know similar I think that that is being on the business side it's interesting to to see how easily you could not even think about that you could just be motivated if that bottom line is oh well I get that bonus at the end of the day whoa I didn't realize we had a manager from this specific story uh, in the conversation. But yeah, you were in the management half of that when Gimlet unionized. Yes. So the Solidarity Slate won, and the WGA East is going to continue that process of looking for opportunities to gain new members in new media and building a larger, stronger union with that in mind. Where we are today is we're on the cusp of a possible IATSE strike over a lot of the same things we've been talking about. Now, IATSE has never had a strike. WGA has had six, SAG has had five, the DGA had one, and it was like three hours long. IATSE never has. IATSE was traditionally considered the most conservative of the unions. It wasn't always the the biggest. You know, there used to be the CSU, which had a strike in 45, and there was NABED on the East Coast. But at this point, it's really IATSE is the strongest player, and there was a strike authorization vote with 98% voting yes to authorize a strike, which gives a lot of power to the negotiators mm-hmm. as they negotiate over the same thing we're talking about, which is, again, new technology and new media. Yeah. The current IATSE deal lets new media streamers pay less than the traditional studios. And so Apple, Netflix, HBO Max, all of the – basically everything everybody actually watches – get to pay lower rates because they're all considered new media. And IATSE is like, nope, after, now, we, now we don't want to call that new media anymore. It's all just media. And they're also fighting for better turnaround times, enforced lunch breaks, real weekends, real sleep. Like they're fighting for like just humane things. And I think there's a lot to learn from WGA and their six strikes and how those have gone. I think there's a lot of benefits to paying attention to what they did and how what they did might play out as IATSE is at the organizing table trying to fight for people to get sleep on film shoots. I'm all for getting enough sleep. Yeah. So this is the first episode of Distorted by Glamour. You might see this in a podcast feed that you're like, that's not the show I normally subscribe to there. But check out the Distorted by Glamour feed. We're going to keep doing episodes about labor and film and trying to get to the dream of like a, an eight hour day for everybody in entertainment. Cause we, we love this industry and we want to do cool stuff, but we also want like good night's sleep and hanging with our fans. And uh, if you liked this, subscribe to it, let us know on Twitter. You liked it and you want more episodes, suggest episode ideas 
and engage with us. And um, yeah, Distorted by Glamour. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you, Charles, for uh, this awesome history lesson. Credit where credit's due. I did a lot of research on this, but uh, the biggest source is a book called The Writers by Miranda J. Banks, Rutgers University Press. And it's a book about the history of the Writers Guild. If you like this episode and you want a whole lot more, including amazing anecdotes about Louis B. Mayer, uh, you should totally check that one out.